Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. Good to be back in the Word of God with you again. We've been laying the groundwork in the book of Daniel, and today we are plunging in. Bible should be open to Daniel chapter 2. We start again with verse 1. Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made in ash heap. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. They answered again and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will give its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time, because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you, for you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation." The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. For this reason the king was angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out, and they began killing the wise men, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Many U.S. history books record that on April 1, 1865, Abraham Lincoln awoke from a disturbing nightmare. He knew it was only a dream, but it plagued him for many, many days. Finally, on April the 11th, he told the dream to his close friend, a man by the name of Ward Lamont, and he also told the dream to his wife. Now, Lamont actually wrote down what the president had said and retold it in his book, Recollections of Abraham Lincoln. According to Lamont, this is what President Lincoln had said to him. About 10 days ago, I retired very late. I had been up waiting for important dispatches from the front. I could not have been long in bed when I fell into a slumber, for I was weary. I soon began to dream. There seemed to be a death-like stillness about me. Then I heard subdued sobs, as if a number of people were weeping. I thought I left my bed and wandered downstairs. Therefore the silence was broken by the same pitiful sobbing, but the mourners were invisible. I went from room to room, and no living person was in sight, but the same mournful sounds of distress met me as I passed along. It was light in all the rooms, every object was familiar to me. But where were all the people who were grieving as if their hearts would break? I was puzzled and alarmed. What could be the meaning of all this? Determined to find the cause of a state of things so mysterious and so shocking, 
I kept on until I arrived at the east room, which I entered. There I met with a sickening surprise before me, a catafalque, on which rested a corpse wrapped in funeral vestments. Around it were stationed soldiers who were acting as guards, and there was a throng of people, some gazing mournfully upon the corpse, whose face was covered, others weeping pitifully. Who is dead in the White House? I demanded of one of the soldiers. The president was his answer. He was killed by an assassin. Then came a loud burst of grief from the crowd, which awoke me from my dream. On April 14th, 1865, three days after Lincoln told Lamont his dream, he was assassinated by John Wilkes Booth. And just as it was in his dream, Lincoln's body was laid out in the east room of the White House, guarded by soldiers and surrounded by a crowd of people mourning his death. His wife Mary and his friend Lamont are both said to have become alarmed after Lincoln had told them his dream. Lincoln himself tried to reassure them that it probably meant nothing. Lincoln did know that death by assassination was a real and constant threat, and Lincoln knew that many from the South would have loved to kill him. After Lincoln was shot on the night of April the 14th, it's reported that Mary, his wife, was heard crying out, his dream was prophetic. It's an interesting question, isn't it? Was his dream prophetic? When you first hear this story, it sure sounds like it. But then again, we only have one man's word to go on. Lincoln's friend, who wrote about it afterwards, and he was trying to sell his book. Word of God teaches us that we can't even know what will happen tomorrow, let alone when our own death is coming. Now, I am not going to sit and pretend to be God. I have no idea whether this really happened or not. But I do know this. The only dreams that I'm going to trust 100% as being prophetic, as being from God, are the dreams that are recorded in the completed canon of the written Word of God. And we have one such dream before us in our text where a man named Nebuchadnezzar, at that time he was the most powerful man in the world, and God gave him a dream that is one of the most remarkable prophecies that is contained in all the Word of God. Chapter 2 of Daniel is important because it records the broadest sweep of world history that God gave to any prophet. And if you want to understand the prophetic scriptures, Daniel 2 is absolutely essential to understand. Daniel 2 outlines God's future program for the nations. Daniel 2 outlines God's future program for the nation of Israel and for the glorious kingdom of the Messiah. The importance of Daniel 2 cannot be overstated. We start again with verse 1. Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. If you remember back to our first study when Daniel and his friends were hauled off to Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar was called back to Babylon because his father had died and Nebuchadnezzar was made the king. We also saw back in verse 5 of chapter 1 that Daniel, along with the rest of the captives, they were trained for a period of three years. And at the end of chapter 1, we saw that Daniel had completed the three years of training. Now verse 1 of chapter 2 starts out by saying, the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And as we go on to see in chapter 2, Daniel is serving the king already in this passage. It's after the three-year period had gone by, so you have to ask yourself a question, which is it? Did this take place after the second year or after the third year? Well, the short answer is that both statements are correct, and there are two possible answers to this. One view is that all of chapter 2 takes place while Daniel is still in training. 
Some of the evidence that would lean towards this is that in chapter 2, verse 2, Daniel and his friends were not called with the rest of the wise men. And then the idea would be that Daniel and his friends were still in their training. In verse 27, Daniel actually disassociates himself with the wise men. The problem I have with this view is that first chapter 1 is clear. Daniel and his men had completed their training. And secondly, in verse 13, Daniel was included with the wise men. What I think is more likely is that this just goes back to the differences between the dating systems used between the different cultures. The Babylonians did not count the year that a king came into power. On their calendar, the rest of 605 B.C. and the first part of 604 B.C. would have been credited to his father's reign. So the first year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign would have been year zero, and the second year would have been recorded as year one, and the third year would have been recorded as year two. So the idea is that instead of counting one, two, three, they started counting by zero, one, two. And if you follow this timeline, it means that Daniel arrived in Babylon in 605 BC. Nebuchadnezzar's first official year would have not started until the spring of 604 BC and would have continued until the spring of 603 BC. The second year of his reign began in 603 and ended in 602 BC. In other words, what I'm telling you is that the math works out. Daniel was taken to Babylon in 605 B.C. after three years of training. It is now either late 603 B.C. or early 602 B.C. And Daniel is now in service to Nebuchadnezzar, which was recorded as the second official year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Verse 1 goes on to tell us, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Notice here in verse 1, Daniel writes that Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, plural. But then in this section of scripture, we only learn of one dream. So this means he was probably having this dream over and over again. But there was something different about these dreams. They weren't normal dreams. The end of verse one states that his spirit was troubled. It means he was bothered, agitated. Literally, the text states that his sleep left him. Nebuchadnezzar was bothered because he knew his dream was not just a normal dream and he wanted to know what it meant. God was more than willing to let old Nebuchadnezzar lose a little sleep because God had a message for him that affected the entire stage of human history. Pick it up with verse 2. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I've had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. It's possible that this was very early in the morning that the king woke people up in order for his advisors, for the wise men to come in. The magicians, astrologers, sorcerers, and Chaldeans all came at the king's command. There's a lot of different opinions about who these men were, but if you just take the Hebrew words and look at the etymology of the words, we can get a decent idea of who they were. The magicians are not what you and I would think of as a magician. This isn't David Copperfield. The Hebrew word refers to those who use the pen, referring to those who learned the sacred writings of the Babylonians. This was referring to the men that were the scholars of the day, but they're also supposed to be able to tell the future. Again, the word for astrologer has a completely different meaning from how it's used today. The astrologers were the enchanters. This would be the priests in these pagan temples that would claim to speak with the dead. Another name for them would be the conjurers, literally those who conjured up people from the dead to talk with. The sorcerers were those who practiced incantations. They were the ones casting spells, chanting. 
They used herbs, potions. They were considered to be working with the evil spirits. They were a part of the widespread witchcraft that was common in that day. The last group listed is the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans have two different meanings throughout the book of Daniel. The first meaning would be that of a group of people that lived in southern Babylonia. It was a group of people that migrated to Babylonia and over the years had become a part of the empire. So much so that Nebuchadnezzar himself was a Chaldean. That was his background. Secondly, the other use of the word would be that of a special class of soothsayers. Soothsayers were people that claimed to foretell the future by magic or astronomy. This seems likely that this is what is meant in this verse. Priests that would claim to use the stars and the magic to tell the future. But the point is, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that scared him, so he gathered together all the wise men. The king wanted to make sure that out of all these men, someone would have been able to help him. Verse 2 says they came before the king. In verse 3, we learn that the king told the wise men he was anxious to learn the dream. Take a look at what happens next, starting in verse 4. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will give the interpretation. Then the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made in ash heap. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. This is just a great passage from the word of God. There are several things taking place in this text. In verse 4, the Chaldeans speak up first. This would be the fortune tellers. They spoke up first, which may tell us that they were the closest or most important advisors that he had. Or then again, it may just be that they had big mouths. We don't really know. Daniel records that they spoke to the king in Aramaic. But what God had Daniel do is record chapter 1 and verses 1 through 3 of this chapter in the original text in Hebrew. But then what happens right here in our text? You don't want to miss this. Chapter 1 in the first three verses of chapter 2 mainly involves teaching that concerns the Jews. So the scripture was written in their language. But at this point in verse 4 all the way through chapter 7, the subject matter is now more focused on dealing with those from other nations. And those nations, Babylon, Persia, and Assyria, they all use the Aramaic language as a sort of international language. It was a common diplomatic and business language that was understood by both Jews and Gentiles. So in chapter 2, verse 4, all the way through chapter 7, the language in the manuscripts, it switches to the Aramaic language because the subject matter deals with God's rule over the Gentiles. And so these chapters were written in the language that the Gentiles could understand. Had these chapters been written in Hebrew, the message would have been missed by most Gentiles living at that time. In chapter 8, when the subject matter switches back, it goes back to being written in Hebrew. Even in the Old Testament, God's grace was on display. Even in the Old Testament, God had compassion on the Gentiles. Now, the Chaldeans tell the king, O king, live forever. This was a normal expression that they would use for the kings of that day. It's kind of like the people in England saying, God save the king. It's a manner of expressing your devotion to the king, a way of saying, I hope that no death comes upon my king. The Chaldeans were pretty tricky. They told Nebuchadnezzar, tell your servants the dream and we will give the interpretation. Keep in mind that the wise men of that day, they actually had manuals, manuals that would tell them how to interpret dreams. 
Now, we mentioned before that the dreams were extremely important to the people of Babylon. And what they would actually do is match up some of the characteristics of a dream with the dreams in their manuals. And then from this, they'd be able to give some interpretation based on these dream manuals. All they needed to know was just some basic facts of the nature of the dream. And then they would look for a parallel in these long manuals that they had so they could give an interpretation of the dream. Because these manuals were actually so long, you had to be an expert in just being able to make your way through them. But even then, even then, you still had to know the dream before you could search for the meaning. The interpretation wouldn't be accurate, but hey, if you could keep the customer happy by giving them some good news about what the dream meant, then they would come back to you again for repeat business. But in this case, the customer was the king, and looking at verse 5, we can see that the king wasn't buying what they were selling. He didn't want to hear the wisdom of men. And I think we get to that point at some time or another in our life when we just really don't want to hear the foolishness of men anymore. We don't want to hear the shallow theories of psychologists or therapists because our soul, our soul hungers for real substance. Our soul hungers for the absolute truth of God's word. Now the king answers back and he tells them here, my decision is firm. The King James is off on this. The King James followed some of the Latin manuscripts of the Catholic Church and reads, the thing is gone from me. It reads as if Nebuchadnezzar had forgotten the dream. But that is not what Nebuchadnezzar said. In fact, if you look at the context of this entire passage, I don't think that Nebuchadnezzar forgot the dream at all. The original text seems to read as it does in the New King James, where Nebuchadnezzar says, my decision is firm. He's telling them that this was a firm decision. What he was about to tell them was not something that he would rethink. It was not something he would change his mind about. So he tells them, if you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made in ash heap. All he was doing was testing the accuracy of their interpretation. They wanted to hear the dream, look at their books, pop out and answer. Remember, they were claiming to have supernatural guidance. If they had supernatural powers to interpret the dream, why could they not first give him the content of the dream? So he was calling their bluff. So the king told them, if they really had the answers, if they were really interpreting the dream, they should be able to tell him what the dream was. You know, it's kind of like a psychic that says they will tell you your future for a certain price. But before they begin, they ask you your name. The king didn't forget the dream. He was testing his wise men. He wanted to know that he could depend on their answer. And what we need to keep in mind is that Nebuchadnezzar might not have had a lot of trust in these men. His father was the king before him, and it would have been common for the king to inherit his father's advisors. Most of these men were probably older than him, and they just figured they could pass off a quick answer. Nebuchadnezzar had also seen these type of men in his nation making money off of people. So it seems pretty clear that Nebuchadnezzar saw right through their charade. It's also possible that maybe they interpreted a dream for him before and it turned out to be wrong. So you get the idea in our text, on the one hand, that Nebuchadnezzar is hoping this will work out, that they could give him some answers, but he doesn't have that much confidence in these men. Now skipping ahead to verse 6 for a second, he tells them if they were actually able to tell the dream and able to tell the interpretation, he would reward them with gifts rewards and great honor but in verse 5 he tells them if they can't if they can't tell him both the dream and the interpretation they would be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made in ash heap 
Cutting them into pieces was a literal punishment. This was common to dismember someone with a sword. If there is any doubt in your mind that Nebuchadnezzar would do this, read Jeremiah chapter 52, where you see what he did to Zedekiah, one of the kings of Judah. He killed Zedekiah's sons right before him. He killed all the princes of Judah, blinded Zedekiah, and then hauled him in chains to Babylon, where he would die in prison. Nebuchadnezzar, he ruled like most of the kings of that day, by force. You obeyed or you died. So Nebuchadnezzar tells the wise men not only would he kill them, but their houses would be made into an outhouse, a rubbish heap or an ash heap, depending on how you translate this verse. And what they would do if they killed and dismembered an enemy, they would wipe out their house. They would turn their house into a garbage dump or a place to put the human waste. It's hard to be sure which one Nebuchadnezzar meant. But it doesn't matter because either way, he meant business, didn't he? Turning someone's house into a garbage dump or a public restroom, it's not too much different today. You may remember that not too many years ago, Adam Lanza shot and killed 20 kids at Sandy Hook Elementary. Now, not only did they bulldoze the elementary school, but they demolished his home as well. Back in that day, it was a way of showing the rest of the people what disobedience would bring. It wiped out the entire estate of the person that was killed. It was meant to humiliate the person even after they were dead. Pick it up with verse 7. They answered again and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will give its interpretation. Well, the Chaldeans kept trying. If you tell us the dream, we'll tell you what it means. I absolutely love how the king responds in verse 8. Nebuchadnezzar tells them, I know for certain that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm. Nebuchadnezzar saw right through their act. The phrase gain time, it literally means that they were trying to buy time. They were stalling. They knew that they could not do what he asked, so the only thing they could do was try to reason with him. Kings would quite often have people killed, but it was not exactly normal to kill your own advisors, at least not all of them at once. It was not normal to kill the men that were supposed to seek the wisdom of the gods on behalf of your empire. Because if you did, it was believed that the gods would bring their judgment upon your nation. In other words, what I'm telling you is that this went against everything their society stood for, meaning that Nebuchadnezzar must have had some strong reasons for not believing them. And keep in mind in verse 8 that the wording once again should read as the new King James reads, that his decision was firm, not that the king had somehow forgotten the dream, as the King James suggests. His decision was firm, and take a look at what he tells them in verse 9. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. His decree, his sentence was final. Do what he said and be rewarded or die. The middle of verse 9 reveals that the king knew that they had met together and that they had agreed to speak lying and corrupt words until the time has changed. These so-called wise men knew that if they could just saw a little bit, maybe the king would calm down. And then at the end of verse 9, he makes it clear to them again, if you have this supernatural ability that you claim you have, prove it. Prove it by telling me my dream. And then I will know any interpretation you give me is accurate. Verses 10 and 11 are classic. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. 
It's a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Now this is really the heart of the matter, isn't it? No man has this ability. The Chaldeans tried one last attempt to reason with Nebuchadnezzar, and they told the king that it wasn't just them that could not do it. No man was able. Follow the line of thinking. King, don't kill us, because no one that you replace us with could do it either. They were saying, it's not our fault. This was a pretty big moment. Keep in mind, in their system, the pagan gods were not considered all-powerful, but they were considered more powerful and more capable than men. Also remember in their culture, these were the leading representatives of each false god before the king. And so think this through with me. These particular men admitting that no one was capable of knowing what the dream was. It was an admission that even these men devoted to all these false pagan gods, even they could not get enough information out of the gods to be able to tell him what the dream was. They were powerless to be able to provide this information to the king. They had claimed supernatural ability to give information from the gods. And now they had to admit that their gods were of no help to them. Not only did they tell the king that it was not their fault, but they turned it on the king and blamed him for wanting too much from them. They said to Nebuchadnezzar in the second half of verse 10, Therefore no king, lord, or ruler had ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. Young Nebuchadnezzar, don't you know what you're asking? It's not the way things are done around here. It's just too difficult, humanly impossible. And at the end of verse 11, they tell him, there's no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. They tell Nebuchadnezzar that only the gods could tell him. Once again, quite the confession. These men were supposed to be in contact with the gods. That was their job. Take a look at our last two verses. For this reason, the king was angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out and they began killing the wise men and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Verse 12 starts by saying, for this reason, King Nebuchadnezzar had a lot of reasons to be angry with these guys. First, he didn't find out what the dream meant. That was their job. That was what they were supposed to do. And second, he clearly had suspected that these men were fake and his suspicions were proved true. So he knows that anything they did or said in the future would just be lies. And to top it all off, they had insulted the king and told him it was his fault. So what was the point in keeping this group of men around any longer? Now verse 12 says he was angry and very furious. The king was in a fit of rage and he gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. This meant all the wise men, even the men that weren't there, even the men who had nothing to do with trying to foretell the future. This would have been a large number of men. A lot of people were going to die. Now, verse 13 tells us the decree went out. Daniel and company were considered to be a part of this group. And so they sought out Daniel and his friends to kill them. Now, this really sets us up perfectly for our next study. Because the wise men of Babylon, the most powerful nation on earth, confessed before the king that no man could do what he was asking. But Yahweh was about to reveal it through Daniel. Yahweh was about to do what they said no one could do. The story has been told of a king long ago who offered a prize to the artist who could paint the best picture of peace. Many artists tried. The king looked at all the pictures, but there were only two he really liked, and he had to choose between them. One picture was of a calm lake. The lake was a perfect mirror with beautiful, towering mountains all around it. 
Overhead, there was a blue sky with fluffy white clouds. Now, everyone who saw this picture thought it was a perfect picture of peace. Now, the other picture also had mountains, but these mountains were rugged and bare. And above them was an angry sky. Rain was falling down and lightning was flashing across the sky. And down the side of the mountain tumbled a foaming waterfall. Now, this didn't look peaceful at all. But when the king looked closely, he saw behind the waterfall a tiny bush growing in the crack of the rock. And in the bush, a mother bird had built her nest. There in the rush of angry water sat the mother bird on her nest, sitting in perfect peace. The king chose this second picture because he said, Peace in this world does not mean to be somewhere that is completely absent from all the difficulties of life. Peace in this world means being in the midst of all those things that the world can throw at you and still have a sense of calm in your heart. I think that Daniel had this peace when death surrounded him in the face of a raging king. Daniel demonstrated peace, a peace that can only come as men and women learn to trust in God, as men and women live by faith. Joy, confidence, and peace all come from a deep trust in the Lord and a deep trust in His Word. There's absolutely nothing in this world that can ever be a substitute for the peace of God in your life. If you still have your Bibles open, skip down to verse 26. Daniel is finally before the king. And in the second half of verse 26, the king said to Daniel, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Take a look at Daniel's response, starting in verse 27. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. And notice this. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. You see, Daniel's confidence was not in himself. His confidence was in God. Daniel is a man living day by day in God's peace, a man living with complete confidence and trust in the Lord. And let me suggest to you that how you react to those tough, difficult situations of life reflects either the peace you have because of Christ in your life or it reflects your lack of trust in the Lord. How you react to those struggles of life speaks a lot about your faith. You see, if your world becomes unglued every single time you hit a bump in the road, your own lack of faith in God should trouble you. The theme of the book of Daniel is found in verse 28. There is a God in heaven. And my hope is that day by day, your confidence in God will continue to grow. And we close our time with some of the most comforting words of Scripture when you go through those bumps in life. Words of Philippians 4, where Paul told the church, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. 
Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word 